Well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. You can, I'm, I'm guessing that you're there by now. And this is the chapter that I've been waiting to preach all of 1 Corinthians. It's all been good, but this is the big showstopper. This is the climax. And, and last week, we opened up in the first four verses, and we'll read it again. But the first four verses showed us that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus died, was buried, and rose. And we love that here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Amen? We are excited about that because of all of the implications that come from that, everything that means to us and what means for the future of the entire cosmos. We're going to see that in, in, the, in the verses. This is an enormous chapter. It is a glorious chapter. It is an explosive chapter. It, it, it ranges back from Adam in the garden to the future world that is to come. It, it, it explains to us how we began on our Christian walk, and it explains to us where we're going at the future of the resurrection. It's an enormous chapter that is so rich and full of gospel goodness. What we saw last week especially was that the gospel is the good news. That's what that word gospel means. It's the good news from God to man. It was not created by man, thought up by some religious institution or reasoned out by the apostles, but it was revealed from God to the apostles to preach to the world. And what the gospel has to be, what we must do with the gospel is preach it, believe it, stand firm on it and hold fast to it because it is that and that alone which saves us. Church membership, even uh, getting busy on the mission, doing righteous and good and holy things, knowing your Bible, reciting creeds and confessions, all good, none of it saves us. Only the gospel is our foundation. And we looked at that. Therefore, we stand on it because it, it is what saves us and is saving us and will save us. And the good news, which is the gospel, is all about Jesus. It's him that we preach. It's him we believe. It's him we stand in. It's him we're saved by. It's him that was risen. It's a person. It's a relationship. It's a glorious reality that we are not just filled with knowledge about God, but we are filled and united to the person of God in Jesus. That's Christianity. So much more than dead religion is that we've been unified into the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And this week, what we're going to be looking at is how the resurrection that Jesus uh, enacted, that, that historical reality is not divorced from theology and our theological beliefs are not divorced from historical fact. So it's not enough to say, I'm a Christian, I believe in the resurrection and I don't care what the evidence says otherwise. I, I don't really care whether something is unhistorical or even anti-historical or unscientific or anti-scientific. I believe in Jesus, and it's just a spiritual belief. It sort of floats above the laws of logic and history and science and all of that. We don't believe that because Jesus is Lord of everything. All truth is Christ's truth. We don't believe the Bible because it's, it's, uh, uh, we, we learned enough scientific facts. We don't believe the Bible because the historians tell us to. Yet, we stand firmly on the foundation of Scripture and say, since the resurrection happened, it left historical footprints behind. It actually, it's a historical true event that left proofs. It left evidence. It left realities behind in history. My belief is tied to, and this is the Christian religion, this is the Jewish religion until Christ came and transformed it. It is not a mythological religion that sort of believes these disconnected facts and things about the gods that doesn't really find its root in the world. 
We believe from creation to God's covenants, to the ark, to Abraham, to Moses and Egypt and, and Israel and Jesus coming, being born, dying and raising. It's all historical. It happened. They're facts. God is the God of history. God is transforming history. God came into history. God died, rose again in history. So we're going to see from verse 5 till 11 today, <clears throat> we're going to see that the proofs of the resurrection created witnesses. The proofs of the resurrection, the, the proofs of the resurrection, get that one right, geez. The proofs of the resurrection created witnesses and the power of the resurrection created workers. The proofs of the resurrection created witnesses because it actually happened. And the power of the resurrection created workers because there is power at hand for those who believe in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so let's read. I'm just going to start back at verse 1. We will be sure to read 1 to 4 every week, whatever section we're doing. This is good to get into our veins. Resurrection, resurrection 5. Oh, starts like this. <clears throat> now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it then was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. May God bless the reading of his inerrant, powerful, divine, authoritative word to us this afternoon. Resurrection 15, I'm going to do that all evening. I'm going to drive myself insane. That's it. Resurrection verse 1 here <laughs> through 4 showed us that the gospel, the gospel was foretold by the scriptures. That's what he means by he died and rose according to the scriptures. But it's also interpreted by the Old Testament scriptures. That's also what he means by according to the scriptures, he died and rose. The death and resurrection of Jesus are what the Old Testament tell us was coming. But this week, we start looking at the proofs and the witnesses of the resurrection, and then we see what the resurrection reality did to Paul's life. Number one, because it is a historical fact that Jesus rose, and we will never apologize for being dogmatic about that, he did rise, it was real, he appeared to Cephas. Number one, he appeared to Cephas. And Cephas is just, a, don't get alarmed that you didn't know about the apostle Cephas. That wasn't the 13th one that you weren't told about. Cephas is just the, the Greek or Gentile uh, name for Peter. Right? Uh, Jesus changed his name from uh, Simon, which sort of meant reed, soft and wavy reed, and he called him 
Peter, which was sort of a play on words because it sounded exactly like the word for rock. He's making him a rock. He's going to build his church on the confession of Peter and his leadership. Peter was the leader of the 12 apostles. Peter became a man who would, who would preach the resurrection of Jesus because he saw Jesus risen. This is something that whatever uh, uh, people out there, maybe even here tonight, and you're welcome if this is you, uh, who would want to say that the resurrection is a myth, it didn't happen. They have to reckon with the reality of transformed people like Peter. Peter, who in John 18, three times ran away from people who were even suggesting that he was with Jesus, that he was a disciple of Jesus who was just about to be crucified. Two of those times, there was a little girl who was saying, I'm pretty sure you're from Galilee. I'm pretty sure, Mr. Sir, that you're one of the guys who was following Jesus. And at that, he called down curses. He ran away and wept like a little girl. That's Peter. He's big talk. He's a tiny little reed in and of himself. This is Simon. And he was transformed in just a matter of weeks to become what we see in Acts chapter 5, where he is preaching at the people who crucified his Lord, preaching into the faces of the people who are condemning him. And he's saying, you're blood-guilty murderers. You're sinful. You know it. And Jesus is risen. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And I will not stop preaching. They took him, they beat him and his friends up, and they walked away limping and dancing for the honor that it was to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Whatever happened to Peter, we have to reckon with it. Cephas was transformed from a coward, a, a selfish man, into a bold proclaimer of the resurrection. It's because Peter's life is a proof of the fact that Jesus was really and truly resurrected. This was a man who would, in, into his later years, he would uh, be taken under the uh, government of Emperor Nero in Rome in the year, I believe, 64. He was pinned, uh, he was about to be crucified, and he asked that he would not be killed in the same manner of his Lord Jesus. He wasn't worthy of it. So they turned the cross upside down. That was good enough for him, and he was crucified upside down. Church history tells us that, that was alongside his wife. He did that. What happened to him? He saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ walking, talking, touching, speaking. But he did more than just appear to Peter. He did appear to Cephas and then to the 12. This is uh, meaning the, arrest, the rest of the capital A apostles. Uh, and I know what you're saying. You're pretty quick. You're very smart. You picked up on it. There wasn't 12 of them. There was only 11 of them. The 12th one is hanging from a rope in a tree called the potter's field and his bellies have burst out because he's rotting in the sun. That's what the book tells us. So there's not 12 disciples anymore. There's just 11. But of course, the, the 12 is not just a numerical number of the first chosen disciples of Jesus. It was, it was actually a name, sort of a catchphrase that you would still uh, be in the first 15s of a rugby team even if you got injured or you got a red card and there was only 14 players on the field, right? It's still just a name that, that um, encapsulates the people. So they still just said the 12, referring to the capital A apostles, chosen disciples of Jesus Christ. And we see this. I wonder what your understanding of those, uh, those days were. Did you know that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples until he was ascended? The, sometimes you can read the book of Luke and then straight over to the book of Acts and it just looks like there was maybe, maybe a few hours between Jesus giving the Great Commission and then Jesus disappearing up into the sky. It wasn't. It was 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and when he was ascended. 
And you might also think, just because of what the, the Gospels sort of tell us, which only give us samplings, is that that time was just filled with every now and then Jesus would show up, it would be a great time with him, and then he'd leave again. Uh, and that's not what it was like. At first, there was a few meetings here and there, and then, we're told, he actually spends a lengthy time with them. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this Jesus, who before he died had said to them, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back to you, fulfilled his promise. He came, he consoled their broken hearts. He met them again, he taught them again, he explained, of course, what the Old Testament would be interpreting about his death and resurrection now that they were starting to come to an understanding of it all. Jesus opened the scriptures for them so that they understood. And what this helps us push back on is the other theory, uh, which, which comes out of uh, some proponents of Islam, uh, even some Jehovah's Witnesses, who will say that what happened in the resurrection, gloriously as it is, it's amazing, he died for our sin, he rose spiritually. That yes, there's technically still a grave somewhere in the world, and Jesus of Nazareth is there, he is rotten, he does have a decomposed corpse there now, but that doesn't matter, because Jesus rose in our hearts, ladies and gentlemen. And Jesus rose spiritually, and, and that's more powerful than physical resurrection, if you think about it, and it was the power of love that helps us, you know, all that, that nonsense. Liberal theologians try and put it forwards, Jehovah's Witnesses say it, and uh, some uh, followers of Islam push forward this apologetic. The, the issue with that is that it just simply does not deal at all with the evidence that we have happening in the resurrection appearances. It wasn't, an if, it wasn't as if they saw just enough to sort of come to a conclusion that he was uh, a real living person, but really he was a soul and just a floaty spirit, ghosty thing that was going to leave them. There's no room for that theory whatsoever in the eyewitness accounts that occur. Luke 24 tells us from verse 38, Jesus came to them, and it, it says from verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Right? He's showing them the wounds that he has suffered at the hands of the Romans. He says, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Could he be clearer? And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, were still, while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. See what's going on here? There's no room for some kind of spiritual resurrection. Jesus literally says it so very clearly. That's not what they were proclaiming. They saw him. They spoke with him over 40 days. They touched him. They hugged him. They saw his wounds. And just as a weird little uh, uh, historical bit that Luke puts in, he was eating. He was eating fish. He was there. He was physical. He was absolutely, absolutely real. These these 12 disciples that, came, uh, the, uh, that became the capital A apostles that Paul says here in verse 5 that Jesus appeared to, they would go on to become the witnesses, the messengers, which is what apostle means. And they were so very clear. In what they were saying, there's no room to say that you believe the Bible and you also believe in a spiritual-only resurrection. What they would write and say it was so very clear. They believed it was 
absolutely physical. It occurred in real space-time history. There was no body left in the grave. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. This is, of course, Cephas, the apostle Peter, who wrote, We did not follow, sorry, 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. There's nothing that has developed. This is reality. And he says, 1 John, also, he, uh, the Apostle John writes, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that's that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Can he say it again? The only sense that he didn't say there was smell. That's fine. He said, see, hear, touch, talk with, it's all there. It was a physical, real bodily resurrection because that is what he has uh, sealed for us also is a bodily resurrection. And he keeps on going. That's not proof enough. That's not all that Jesus left behind. Then says that after seeing the 12, verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. So at some time during the, the 40 days before Jesus ascended, we don't, we don't have this story in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, but here Paul's confirming it happened. At some point in that 40 days, Jesus appeared, not just a whole bunch of different people accumulating to 500, but to a crowd of 500 people who believed in him, he appeared at once. Uh, you may not have realized that there were so many people who believed in Jesus. You might, maybe you thought it was just the 12 minus Judas, that's all that there was, and then the Pentecost happened, and then they got converts. But there was actually people who were faithful, who believed. When Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2, we saw that there was at least 120 in Jerusalem, I would be inclined to think that the 500 were up at Galilee. That's why they weren't all in Jerusalem. That was Jesus' hometown. Those who had believed, they were all there. 500 people saw him. This pushes back on another theory. I hope you're okay with us just dismantling theories tonight that have been proposed against the resurrection. Uh, uh, and, and remember, Paul is not here trying to prove the resurrection. He doesn't care if people think that they've got reasons to disbelieve it. He's just explaining reality as God has made it to be. And just by the sovereignty of God and the writing of his word, these four verses alone answer every ridiculous theory against the resurrection. That's the word of God. It is powerful and, and at work all throughout history. There'll never be a theory come up that the word of God does not soundly and completely answer. Always stand on the word of God for your apologetics. And here's God uh, uh, through, through Jesus appearing to 500 people at once. The the theory that uh, we're going to dismantle now is this hallucination theory. All sorts of people will try and uh, suppose this. And, and really what they think is, look, those people, they love Jesus so much. And when he died, they were so heartbroken. And, and they were so hopeful that Jesus would come back that they saw him. They, they were so hopeful that, that the, their hope sort of gave way to reality in their mind and they pictured him as if he was there and, and that, that reality was, was so sure that, that they really believed that he was really there. And then they started going around preaching. Now, of course, it's dumb on the surface, but it's fun to sort of look under the hood and show why it doesn't work as well. Uh, the first being, and you might not have realized this, 
<laughs> is that hope and expectation in something like that presupposes that you've got categories for that. Now, maybe if, if, they, if the first century Jews had a belief in the Messiah coming back from the dead, maybe this could start to work as a theory. That, that, that if they had room in their theology, that somebody would resurrect in the middle of space-time history. You could start making some sense. But that, they didn't have a theology for that. Uh, the Jewish mindset of resurrection was something that happened to everybody at the very end of the world. They did not believe, you know, Jesus said it to uh, the sister of Lazarus. He said, he'll rise again. And she said, yeah, I know. We're all going to rise again. The resurrection, no one comes back to life now. And that even when Jesus was saying, I'm going to die and rise again, they had no categories for that. They didn't understand. So no, this mass crowd of, of Jewish people in the first century would not have been so hopeful that they saw it. They didn't believe it was at all likely. It was not something that God did. So doesn't work on, on that account. But even more is that the reality of a hallucination, go and look up the Webster's Medical Dictionary if you want, the reality of a hallucination is that it is occurring in your brain and not in reality. That it's not happening, happening external to you and therefore by definition cannot be shared with other people. That's not what a hallucination is. That's impossible. And I've shared this with atheists on the street, with friends of mine, with people online, and, and people just say, no, I think, I mean, it happened. I know that science says, this is what I say, I know that science says hallucinations can't be shared, but since it happened, hallucinations can be shared. I sort of go, that's great reasoning. I know that science says people don't come back from the dead, but since Jesus came back from the dead, I think now we can have room for a miracle in our science that says Jesus came back from the dead. We can redefine some things now. And, and this is what this is the world that we live in, that the world, mankind has never been any different, has always been the same. You'll realize it yourself as well as you share the gospel. People are willing to believe any kind of ridiculous nonsense and miracles as long as it's not the miracle that demands they repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ and change their lives. People are willing to believe any nonsense like nothing got woke one day and created everything. Literal nothingness created everything. They make, they make it sound so smart, you don't even realize how dumb that is. The, the, the professors say it, so there must be something behind that philosophically that I don't understand. No! Nothing makes nothing. That, that's for another day. Or, or they'll say things like this. Hallucinations were shared by 500 people at the same, at the same time saying the same thing. It's just another miracle. It's not actually science at all. Well, here we are. This is an amazing amount of evidence that 500 people, many of whom were still alive, were able to be spoken to. Those people did not imagine what they saw, but rather the, the evidence is, is uh, and that theory doesn't even deal with the evidence, which says they didn't just see him and think about it. They touched with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They walked with him over 40 days. Now, of course, Paul says here, that some of these 500 people have fallen asleep. Some of them have uh, no longer walking with us, and of course he means that they're dead. This is just the New Testament way to refer to brothers and sisters who have died, because when you're in the context of talking about the resurrection, let's not even use the word dead. It's so inappropriate to think of our brothers and sisters who have gone beyond the grave before us to think of them as dead. They're not dead if Jesus is alive. They're just sleeping bodily. Spiritually, they're living with him, and they'll come back to re-inhabit those bodies very, very soon. 
He says that some of them are asleep, but some of them, and here's the apologetic power of this, like today, you want to be assured of the resurrection, you to pray for faith, you, you really un, uh, uh, dig into the Word of God, maybe listen to this sermon a couple of times in your head just to really get it down back in first century. What did Paul say? Go talk to Peter, he was there. Go talk to the guy down the road. He, he, there's 300 of them that live in a village that saw him. It's easy. Any other court of law would judge this as case closed. Jesus is alive. But true and committed unbelief is a greater faith than what it takes to believe in the resurrection. And so even that is not enough for many people. Anyway, we can keep on going because then he says he appeared to James. One thing that this means, when he says he appeared to James who is still alive, I'll tell you why we think that in a moment, and also and he appeared to the 500, many of whom are still alive, this pushes back on yet another theory a theory that says the apostles sort of, you know, the resurrection happened 33 AD, so they say. This wasn't written until the early 50s AD. There's almost 20 years in there uh, where, where the stories got passed around, the, the mythology developed, it sort of, it built and sort of crescendoed in this ridiculous story, this myth handed down through oral tradition of the resurrection. But history leaves no room for that. Because, first of all, it's only 20 years, that sort of stuff. If we were to start uh, recounting on the history of September 11, if somebody says that that was a dragon coming up out of the sea and, 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 and destroying an American city, no one would buy that. We were there, many of us know it, the, 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 there's no room for that story to develop, and the eyewitnesses disprove that. So that when people say that the resurrection story developed over many years, we just say absolutely not, there's no room for that. That's completely illogical. 20 years with hundreds of eyewitnesses still alive leaves no room for mythology developing. And this James that we see here, verse 7, then he appeared to James. This James is not the Apostle James. The Apostle James was already dead and therefore does not really, uh, he would have been back among the, the 12 when, when Paul said that in verse 5. And also, he wouldn't have been a very helpful witness to call to the table at the moment. He was uh, beheaded in, by Herod Agrippa in, uh, in, Judah, uh, in, yeah, in Israel. Rather, what, and this is powerful, what Paul is pointing to here is, is James, the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus, who for his whole life, while Jesus was in the ministry, he was opposing Jesus. Mark 3 tells us that him and his other brothers went to get Jesus because he was crazy. They were embarrassed about him. They thought he was out of his mind. They never joined his cause. They never believed what he was saying. They never worshipped him as God, and they never believed until they saw him alive after being crucified, and they began to worship him as God. This is an extremely strong apologetical uh, point to be making, that something happened. I mean, what would it take you... All right, you got a sibling? What would it take you to worship and tell everybody that your sibling is perfect? You'd worship them as the eternal God when you are a devout Jew who knows that that sort of activity gets you killed. That's blasphemy. You're willing to risk your eternal soul just to make some story about your older brother more believable. I'm a younger brother. Completely unlikely for me. James saw Jesus bodily rise, and he became a believer then. We, we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that it was not just James, but the family of Jesus 
who was worshiping and praying to Jesus. Acts 1.14 tells us, all these disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. All of Jesus' siblings and his mom had become full-fledged believers in this Lord Jesus Christ, who they worshipped as God because of the resurrection. He left the evidences. He left, the, and the greatest and strongest evidences are those recreated people in their new resurrection life themselves. That's what he left in his wake. But there's one more theory in this verse that we can take a swing at. And that's the theory that is proposed by some Christian scientists, some uh, uh, of Islam, and some others simply trying to uh, escape reality. They say that Jesus Christ of Nazareth didn't die. What happened was, is what some will say, when Simon of Cyrene, that healthy guy walking along the road that the Romans grabbed and made him carry the cross... Somehow, by the time they got to the top of the hill, they forgot what the bloodied mess Jesus looked like that they'd whipped almost to death. And they confused him with Simon of Cyrene, healthy young man walking along the road. And they crucified him instead of Jesus. And Jesus was able to scurry away. That makes sense, doesn't it? No. They, they, or they say that somehow Jesus trickily, sneakily swapped himself out with a bystander or that one of his brothers was, this is the swap, the lookalike theory, that somebody who looked like Jesus died. And he's the one who, who or, or that it was uh, one of the lookalikes who came to them after his death and said that he was resurrected. And you understand now that maybe a bunch of people who went to high school with you maybe would, would confuse you with your brother. Maybe people who had seen you at a big concert one time might think that you're, uh, they forget what your face looks like and they're believing that it's somebody else. But this is Mary, his mother, this is James, his brother. No one is fooling them. All the 12 men that have walked and lived with him for three years, nothing is fooling them as some kind of swap-around look-alike theory. It has no room in reality. The reality is that Jesus, for our sin, died on the cross. That Jesus went before the Father and was confirmed as a substitutionary atonement that would cleanse and redeem sinners that he came back to the earth, blew apart the grave, and walked out to prove it to the world, and he started appearing to people. That's history. <clears throat> and then after that, after James, he appeared to all the apostles. Now, I know what you say. We just talked about the 12 a couple of verses ago. But that's different. <clears throat> what we see in the New Testament is that sometimes the Greek word for apostles means missionaries, the messengers who were sent. Sometimes that's what it means. And depending on context, sometimes it means the capital A apostles. The 12 is the other word for it. And we see that here, Paul must be meaning some, distinguish, uh, some distinction between them because he said the language of the 12 earlier and now he's using language of all the messengers, all the missionaries, all the apostles. So then this must refer, of course, we don't uh, know exactly who he means by this, but it's referring to... Uh, those people who in the first century were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection and became missionaries to the world that they lived in. Probably, this was sort of a class of sent-out missionary in the early church, and so most people in any New Testament church would have understood that, uh, uh, what was meant by an apostle, or they probably knew somebody who knew somebody who was great mates with one of those apostles who were out there sharing the word of God, being killed for their faith. These people became willing to die for the truth 
that Jesus rose, appeared to them, and is the reigning Lord in history. One more theory we can start pushing back on now is the idea that these early Christians, I'm sure you've heard this, Christianity was developed by the rich and the powerful so that they can control the masses. You ever heard that one? That, that apparently the, the Roman guys came up with the theory that the guy they killed came back to life. That's not historical. That, that apparently the Christians, those early first generations of Christians, were, by the means of the gospel, able to set themselves up as rich and powerful rulers to control people. That happened? So these apostles, these nameless Christian martyrs in history, is that what happened to them? Friends, all of these apostles, the, 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 by far the majority of them, would seal their witness with their blood. It would become 300 years under Emperor Constantine before being a Christian would be in any way politically respected, yet alone to make you powerful. That would be another few hundred years after that. There's no room here for that. These apostles who became the missionaries became the leaders over a ragtag bunch of loser Christians, not what you give your life for. No offense, I'm one of them. And that what they won was not riches, was not glory or power or honor, but death at the hands of their enemies. So no, that theory holds absolutely no water whatsoever. They would not lie uh, had there been no... And there had been no reality to what they were saying. They were not, I mean, there, there's rea- people lie. We know that. I'm not saying that because they're religious. They just wouldn't lie. I'm saying that if you were lying for some gain and no gain was coming about, like Judas, they would have given up the whole story, sold some of their friends, made a huge buck from the Romans. They would have given it up under threat of death, but instead their heads were removed from their body before the witness of Jesus Christ was removed from their tongue. They did not give up their story. And, and this is something that is just so powerful as well as, as a part of our apologetic and simple historical reality. It is, if Jesus did not rise, and what is so uncanny is that this poor man from Galilee was buried in a public grave. A rich man donated his very public, very prestigious grave. What that helps us realize is if anybody in all of Judea wanted to know or go and see the grave of Jesus, they would be able to. It was a rich guy's impressive grave. That was in the phone book. That was in the registry of of the city. That was easy to find. Had he simply been taken from the cross and dealt with like a crucified man, he would not have had a grave. Would have given a little bit more wiggle room to those theories that Jesus didn't actually rise. But as it stands, everyone could have been a, a, a witness to that grave had Jesus' body stayed there. And... All, all that the powers that be of the day had to do, all that they had to do was offer a big enough buck cash reward offering for somebody to find the body or to come out with the body. I mean, it had gone missing. It was somewhere. Somebody must have stolen it, right? I mean, the, the apostles were offering no cash prize, were offering no bribe in order to lie about this. And all the money and all the power and all of the, the searching ability was on the side of the deniers, and they never... They never were able to produce a body. It was the linchpin of the argument. If they were able to do that, this whole story would fall flat. They never could. They never did because Jesus rose again. Now we start looking at verse 8. So we've seen him appear to Peter, the apostles, James, 500 people, and then all of the, all of the missionaries of the church. And now, now we see him completely out of time appear to Paul. He says in verse 8, last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He says here, as one untimely born, which is in the Greek literally meaning a, an abortive. I, I was like a fetus that was taken out before birth time, before I was ready. <clears throat> and there's lots of theories about what, what he meant by that. Uh, I think that what he's saying is, those other 12 disciples, they had three years sort of in the spiritual womb to get ready for their conversion and being sent as missionaries. And, and as foolish as they were and as many misconceptions as they had, they were able to work through it for three years and, and finally be, be ready to be sent out as apostles. But I was not like that. I didn't get a nine-month or three-year gestation in the spiritual womb of sort of being able to work through these things with Jesus. I was at my peak opposing the church on my horse, and Jesus just appeared and tore me out of the womb. I did not have time to prepare. I was not really spiritually ready to become an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet that's what he says happened. As one untimely born, out of joint, out, uh, jolted out of the usual way of things working, I, on that Damascus road, had an instantaneous conversion, and over a matter of days was ordained and commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he means. I was born out of time. It just didn't feel right. It looked wrong. But he says, last of all. This becomes, and this needs to be something you, you, you get familiar with in your head, an apologetic, not so much against the, we're not talking resurrection apologetics now, but in terms of an apologetic for the once for all time reality of the apostolic office. Paul says here, so significantly, last of all. All. And his meaning is that nobody knew will ever be added to the list of people who saw the risen Jesus. Jesus would not get off his throne to physically appear to anybody else except for John in the vision that would bring about the book of Revelation. But he was not a new person. Paul was the last person out of anybody in history who saw the risen Jesus. I say this because so many people, and, and whatever visions happen and whatever dreams that people uh, receive from the Holy Spirit, they're a different story. But people today, I, I was in a church one time, I was a visiting preacher, and there was a guy coming to ask for support in, from this church on his missionary journey because he saw and met with, sat down and discussed with the specifics of his journey with the risen Lord Jesus. I wasn't buying it. And none of us should. Not just because the story made no sense and he was rebuking Jesus in the vision, which he was. No, that's bad enough. But because, even if it's the most biblical-sounding reality, if somebody claims to have seen the risen Lord Jesus physically, you point them to verse 8 here and say, no, the Apostle Paul was last of all. And so many Christians do not realize how, how important it is that God puts these fences around the reality, that no one else will see the risen Lord Jesus until we are with him after death. It's so important that he does that because people claim all the time and it gives them some kind of authority, some kind of reputation as a minister if they're able to say this. And it didn't happen. The apostolic office had necessary preconditions to be able to be an apostle. They had to have seen the Lord Jesus physically risen, be with him during his ministry and learning from him, and then be chosen and commissioned specifically by Jesus. 
And Paul is saying that those people who fit that category are in a class of their own. They built the foundation of the church. They were a theological and doctrinal authority in the church. No one can question them. So you see why it's so tricky and so handy for people to try and sneak into that list. Be dogmatic on this. No one has ever seen the risen Lord Jesus after Paul. It seals and protects the reality of the apostolic office. <clears throat> he said, he has appeared also to me though. And, and one of the things that Paul had to always push back on was the reality, the reality that he was on the same level as the other apostles. This is something that would come up if you read uh, 2 Corinthians, especially chapter 10 through 11. Uh, you read uh, other parts of, of uh, it happened in, in Philippi, it happened in Thessalonica. It happened all over the place that people would come to a church after Paul's been there and start saying, he's just not that real. I mean, he wasn't one of the first 12. He wasn't like the others. He's self-proclaimed. He's made up. He's not trustworthy. What Paul is doing here when he says, last of all, he appeared to me, he is cutting off everybody else from being able to say that same thing, but he's putting himself in the same list as the 12. He's saying that the resurrection that I saw, the, the physical Lord Jesus who came down to me from heaven and then spent time with me in the desert of Arabia training me, that was the same quality of appearing as the other 12 had. He stands on the same level, authority, and standard as the other apostles. We cannot undermine... Paul's reality as an apostle, or the apostolic uniqueness of their office without undermining the whole Christian faith. So the proof of the resurrection is absolutely undeniable. I'm not saying that'll be enough to convince you if you don't believe, because the, the deeper problem is your unbelieving heart that needs to be changed before you accept the evidence. But the, um, the, the evidence for those who have faith is absolutely overwhelming. And it created this large army of witnesses who proclaimed that Jesus died and rose. In the following verses next week, we're going to unpack what it looked like for Paul to become one transformed by the grace of God, transformed by the grace of God into a worker without compare. But before we close up, I want to ask you, have you reckoned with reality? Have you bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as he has spoken through his word? There's all sorts of evidences, of course. There's all sorts of proofs that we can pull out. But your ultimate problem is not that you don't have enough evidence. Our, our friends, if we're Christians, our friends, the, the ultimate problem with them is not that they don't have enough evidence. It is they do not have faith. Because faith is not that which denies the evidence. Faith is not something that ignores history. Faith is something that realizes that history and evidence are all a part of Jesus' truth. And it all starts with the fact that he is Lord. It all begins with the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And from there, everything else makes sense. So I want to call you that if you are an unbeliever in the room tonight, that, that the, the answer for you, the, the next step for you is not to keep on trying to seek more evidence, though do that. The answer for you is not that God would prove himself to you, though he has but that you would bend the knee to Christ's lordship. And when you do that, you receive everything that Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, which is the full payment of your sin, the full justification of anybody who receives him, meaning that God can look at you as perfectly righteous in his eyes, that he's adopted you 
into Jesus, meaning you become a child of God with all of the rights and benefits that means. That you're infilled with the Holy Spirit to understand and obey the Scriptures. This is the promise of the Gospel. This is what Paul would live and die to proclaim. This is what I proclaim to you today. And this is what Hope Church exists for. The proclamation, the preaching and the spreading, the declaring that Jesus died under the wrath of God for us, rose again to give us an example and a future inheritance to hope for. He's alive. You will be alive after death if you hope in him. This is the gospel. This is our foundation. Amen. Amen. Let's pray as we close out. Father God, we thank you for your revealed word, the revealed word which came to us by the hands and the writings of the apostles, because it was in them that you had chosen to First, reveal yourself and through them give witness to the world of your resurrected reality. We thank you, God, that we have a a word that is from you, promises that are sure in this word, an inheritance and a future to look forward to because of the reality of the resurrection. Lord, I pray first that, that those who know you would be stirred up to faith, to belief, to trust in you in their lives, and to be zealous in the work of the Lord that this truth that they believe so assuredly would not be on the back of evidences from science or historical argumentation as helpful as they might be, but that our faith would rely on the Word of God, our only sure and solid foundation. And the Lord, we would be energetic, that we would be busy in preaching the love of God in the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to the world. God, I thank you that there are also some here who do not know you, that there are some here who are still in their sin, they are still condemned under your law, and they have nothing but judgment coming from them at the point of death. Pray, Lord, that tonight you would give them faith, that tonight you would make Jesus their saviour, that tonight you would give them a new heart, that tonight you would make them repentant of their sin, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, be transformed, saved, and justified. Lord, would you do that? Only you can do that. Lord, we trust you and we love you. We thank you for your word and your love and your grace that is with us until the end of the age. And everybody said, Amen.